0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to be talking um, about not just really alternative therapies, but about therapies and ways to think about sort of how to think about your own fitness level and also to think about uh, the level of training that you're at, and if you're trained you want to train more or less, and if you're overtraining or not, um, and just to give you a little bit of background about myself. So I'm a medical doctor by training. I like to say sometimes a recovering medical doctor because the socialization process of going to medical school is an interesting one, to say the least. Um, and I really then trained in other disciplines as well. So a lot around fitness. Some formal training around nutrition, a couple of years of acupuncture training, and a range of sort of other things. I'm sort of am a lifelong student of martial arts, so sort of the mind body training um, is a big piece of that. And um, and there's a new discipline out. Uh, some of you may have heard of it called integrative medicine. And uh, integrative medicine. Anyone not know that term, integrative medicine? Um, nationally, most people don't know the term, but for some reason, the Bay Area, it's only a minority of people that don't know this term. Um, No surprise, Bay Area being the cutting edge, leading edge, um, I think, place in the world, Um, but I'm biased. Uh, So integrated medicine, for those that don't know, really relates to the fact of, and its strict definition it's really about someone that's conventionally trained, whether they're a nurse practitioner or a physical or a physician assistant, or maybe even a physical therapist, whatever, in conventional training or a medical doctor. And then they learn additional disciplines. So, or at least they're familiar with them. They may not do acupuncture themselves, but they understand the paradigm and thinking around it. And they know how to have a conversation with an acupuncturist or they may be thinking about uh, the use of massage or hypnotherapy or Other things like that. What's considered alternative medicine? The traditional saying is, "Whatever is not taught in medical school," Um, which sometimes is cutting-edge medicine. We just haven't learned it yet, right? But ten years later, are they teaching it? And other times, it's clearly disciplines that aren't from the conventional medical model, right? Homeopathy, for example, takes everything we think about and puts it on its head and flips it upside down Um, because things that are more dilute are actually more potent. How's that possible? Is that possible? Um, So that's sort of the world of alternative therapy. So integrated medicine is people that dare to venture into that field are willing to sort of tackle some of these questions and figure out, "Mm, is this something that might be helpful for you? Um, And a big piece of that's lifestyle medicine as well. So self-care, and we'll talk about that today. Uh, so that just to give you a flavor, and then I, you know, I enjoy cycling and mountain bike riding um, and other other activities as well. Um, so for me, this is a fun talk to put together, just to explore some of this with you. Uh, and when it comes to cycling, mountain biking, I'm not a big competitor, but I do like to do fundraiser rides and stuff like that. So, and I then in that journey met a couple friends, some of which that do the race across America, some that do lots of competition. So these guys are some of the stuff I'll talk about. Uh, you'll sort of—it's yeah, it's their perspective a bit on how do you optimize your training, and do you want to be careful that you're not overtraining. Um, so, uh, and what we'll talk about a bit is testing and monitoring um, in that light, and then some stuff around self-care to help you as a as a cyclist, uh, and just overall improve your vitality and quality of life in general. And then we'll just talk about nitric oxide as one example of some things that people use to help optimize their performance on the bike. So there's this concept of testing to optimize your, what's your peak endurance and your peak fitness level. Um, and one of the sort of, gold, sort of gold standard methods is this concept of VO2 testing. Has anyone ever heard of that, VO2 max testing? Has anyone in the room ever done it? So a few of you, maybe 10% of you. Great. So the numbers range from, you know, 40 to 90. Lance Armstrong, 90. He's her clean. Um, And a lot of it's genetic. uh, And a lot of it is trainable. But people that are sort of high-performance athletes are 50 and above. 50 to 60, 65, you know, that's a strong athlete. When you move to 70, 80, 90, these guys are superheroes, you know. Lance Armstrong is a superhero when it comes to his uh, cardiorespiratory performance capacity. So when you look at this, there's a couple ways to look at it. Um, and it's looking at the oxygen uptake. And they measure that in liters per minute. So I have one of these machines in my practice. And I, I, just to let you know where I practice. So I have uh, a practice in Marin County at Cavallo Point Lodge, if any of you have ever been there. I'm fortunate enough to have a medical practice there. Um, and then there's, there's a gym on that property. There's a, a healing arts center and spa on that property. There happens to be a bar and a restaurant on that property as well as a hotel. Um, and there's beautiful hiking trails. So And there's the water. So I actually take my patients for a swim in the ocean, for a mountain bike ride from there, uh, sometimes a, a road ride from there, or put them in the gyms or go hiking. So there's a lot of sort of opportunity. We have a VO2 fitness machine there. I love putting my patients on it. They don't all love being on it. Some do. Um, And so we get, and I'll show you an example of one patient that we put on it uh, and some of the results. So they're wearing this big apparatus. I didn't include a picture, but basically it's a big apparatus they put over their mouth. uh, And basically there's a tube that connects to a machine. And you're breathing in and out of that machine, getting your air. It measures what's the percent oxygen in the room, what's the percent nitrogen in the room. And then it measures your expired oxygen count. Right? So let's say you extract so much oxygen, you've got 5% left in your oxygen you're exhaling. At a certain point, you can't continue to expire that oxygen as well as you did in the beginning because your body's fatiguing out and it can't extract the oxygen. Even though you're breathing into your lungs, the body's not able to grab it and dump it into the muscles the way it used to. And at that point, you fail. Right? You have this anaerobic moment and you can't keep going how you used to. Uh, you, may, you think you can, and then, you, know, you go as long as you can, and then you get lactic acid buildup and all the things that come along with that. So if you, uh, graphically, if you look at this, this is sort of what it's showing you. So this is someone on a treadmill, and as the treadmill gets ramped up and increased the grade so they're sort of climbing more and more of a hill, you see that the oxygen uptake that they're requiring in order to continue to stay, let's say, at a steady state of, let's say, five miles an hour, let's say, while they're running, a 12 minute mile, let's say um, they got to increase their effort And in order to do that In order to increase their effort they got to extract more oxygen So that's what's happening Until the point that they can't extract anymore And they start building lactic acid And they start getting anaerobic And they fail And, and, they, and they keep going As we keep bringing them up And they're just like pooping out right? you, know, you see their heart rate dramatically goes up around then And some of them say, I can't go anymore and, But at this point we stop the test Another way to look at it is looking at wattage, thinking about cyclists, right? What's your wattage that you're putting into the machine? And the more watts you're able to generate, same idea, right? It's requiring more effort. So you're going up a hill, a lot of effort. You're requiring more wattage, assuming that you're keeping your cadence roughly the same. Of course, there's gears, that's why we love our gears. But those that love your single speed bikes, you're really increasing your wattage when you go up a hill, right? Um, And so the same concept, make sense? So here's an example of a patient uh, that I've put through this, and uh, and you can see here, this guy's in pretty good shape, so if um, you look here, you see VO2, you see heart rate, you see calories per hour calculation, and his fitness level was considered superior, which on the bottom here, you can see, um, in the bottom, if I use this cursor here, you can see he's above, I believe that says 48, and he indeed was... 50, uh, 56.5 at its peak. So, And you can see his associated heart rate of 188. And this is an estimate. If he did that for an hour, boy, he'd be burning a lot of calories. <laughs> right? So if you bring him down, here's your anaerobic threshold. That's really more Your aerobic threshold isn't super relevant. We could talk about that separately. But your anaerobic threshold. And what you're looking for here is you want that to approximate as close as you can to your peak. That means you're fit. So a lot of people may have a really good peak, and they can get themselves there, but they get anaerobic. If they're not very fit, pretty quickly. So, and you can't, how long can you go in an anaerobic state? Does that make sense? So for him, he had 50.8 as his anaerobic threshold at a heart rate of 179, and then he kept going and got himself up to 56 so what we tell most people is, you want to train. You don't want to train above your anaerobic threshold. And a lot of us, particularly as we get older, for sort of type A, aggressive, trying to you know, stay on it, stay fit, we overtrain, and we tend to train at a heart rate 180, 190. You know, and we're all jazzed about it, and actually you're overtraining. And there's some ways to figure that out, which I'll show you in the next couple of slides. So. What this is showing us here is, and I, what I tell this person, and there's another part of this report that sort of outlines that, is, okay, train somewhere around 160 to 180. That's where your heart rate should be. And then you can go up to 190, and, and then, but then come back down. So you can do interval training, but now you have a heart rate that you're setting yourself at. So it's actually real. not Traditionally, what we do is look at age, right? 220 minus your age, and you get that number, let's say, it's, let's say you're 50 years old, so 220 minus 50 is 170. And then you say, mm, I'm pretty fit, I'm going to go to 80% of my maximum predicted heart rate. Or I might go to 90%. But those are all calculations. But your physiology, everyone's unique. So this is a way to figure that out. So, And then based on this, I would say train at that and then come back and do it again. Let's see if we can continue to move that anaerobic threshold closer and closer to your peak. And maybe we'll nudge that peak up a little bit more, too. Um, It's a lot of fun to do. Highly recommend it. They have it at UCSF. They've got a performance lab over in Mission Bay if you want to do it there. We happen to have one at Caval Point, too. But there's there's various places you can do this at. There's some cycling studios that do it as well. Um, So, uh, And then that's most of what I wanted to show you here. Um, in this case, we did it as a treadmill. You could also do it on a bike. The other thing, just of note, is really once you're at your peak heart rate, a lot of times we will look at your recovery rate. And this looks at that at one minute and two minutes. Um, and if you have a high risk of sudden death, if your recovery rate isn't super good. So if, you, if your heart rate doesn't go down by uh, 25 points within two minutes, um, we, there's certain thresholds that we set up. So in his case, he, he recovered quite rapidly, right, from 188 in two minutes down to one hundred and twenty nine and you can see there it 's a fifty three percent reduction so but the take home here around the vo2 testing is really oxygen consumption at, and your heart rate, and then you see when you actually hit these thresholds. So how do you know if you 're over training or under training or where you 're at? This is a fun article to read if you haven 't yet, um, and this Charles Wallace wrote this article in wall street journal what 's your heart rate variability? It may be time to find out. It's really interesting. Who knows about heart rate variability? No one. One person in the room. Great. So let me tell you a little bit about it. Um, heart rate variability is looking at the, the interface between your mind, your nervous system, and your heart. And your heart is highly innervated by the nervous system. You get scared, your heart rate goes up. right? You need to exert yourself. There's signals between your brain and your heart rate. you got to You got to beat faster. Now, with heart rate variability, that looks at the relationship between a couple components of your nervous system, something they call the sympathetic nervous system, which is like the flight or fright nervous system, right? So, tiger comes in the room, you run, right? And that is your sympathetic drive. Cortisol levels, endorphins, all these things are cranking up and you're running away. That's your sympathetic system. In the Bay Area, in particular, but in sort of our, on the, in, the, in our age right now, there's a lot of overdrive. Right, Where people are moving fast through life, and people are really highly um, stressed. And so, in those scenarios, your sympathetic system is engaged a lot. The question is: Is your parasympathetic nervous system also engaged? So, the parasympathetic system is more of the break. It's more of the calming part of your nervous system. It's the aspect that allows you to sort of slow down and regulate more. And that, that innervates your heart as well. And that system then works in relationship with your sympathetic nervous system. And those two imbalance will Accelerate the heart or slow down the heart. The other thing to note, which is sort of interesting, is your parasympathetic nervous system, one of the nerves is called the vagus nerve. The vagus anyone ever heard of the vagal nerve, right? Or a vasovagal, and they passed out. So that vagus nerve innervates the diaphragm of your lungs that underneath your lungs. So if you as you exhale, everyone take a big breath in, and then long exhale. As you exhale, that requires your diaphragm to engage, which requires your vagus nerve, which engages your parasympathetic nervous system, the calming part of your, of your nervous system. So if you ever notice people sighing to calm themselves down, it's your unconscious trying to calm yourself down and engaging your parasympathetic nervous system. Why do we care? Well, if you just have your sympathetic drive going strong your heartbeat's going to be very consistent from one beat to the next. There's not going to be variability from one beat to the next beat. So let's say your your heart rate is 60 beats in a minute. So that would be how many beats per second? 1.00 beats per second, right? If If it was very fixed and it was very low heart rate variability then it would be unchanged. If you had some variability from one beat to the next, it would be 1.05, then 0.95. So you had this variation, 0.95 seconds go by, you have a heartbeat. 1.1 seconds goes by, you have a heartbeat, but on average it's 60 beats per minute. That's called higher variability, right? Higher heart rate variability. Why would that happen? If your sympathetic system is also partnered with the parasympathetic, you get the slowing and and the acceleration. It's sort of like driving on the highway When someone in front of you has their foot on the gas and the brake, and they're hitting both, not safe to do. But in our body, it's actually a good thing. So if you look here, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing these variations, and you can see that variability. And we like that. That's a good thing. Turns out for health, if you take someone in the ICU, and they have very low heart rate variability, their risk of dying goes up. If you take someone in the workplace, and they have very low heart rate variability, their risk for repetitive stress injury and sick days goes up. It turns out, for tr- us training, if you overtrain and your body's fatigued and you're overtrained, your sympathetic system is over revved up, your heart rate variability will go down. So, if you're t- overtraining, you'll have very uh, low heart rate variability. Now, there's confounding factors because if you're stressed out, you're not getting enough sleep, there's other things that will influence your heart rate variability. But all things remain the same. If you take two athletes and you overtrain one of them and you don't overtrain the other, you'll see a difference in their heart rate variability. If you take the same athlete and allow them to, for example, taper, let's say they do a very intense training session and then on the back side of that training they do a taper so they're not training as hard and they're recovering, you'll see their heart rate variability go up. Does that make sense? So a variation on this um, is sort of a different approach, which is even actually around sort of attitude. and, And you'll see more heart rate variability when people do things around appreciation. So gratitude, appreciation, meditation practices, other things like that, increased heart rate variability. Frustrated, angry, upset, decreased heart rate variability. And similarly, if you look at different emotional states, putting the cortisol and DHA aside for this conversation for now, you want to be a little bit more towards the contentment, ease, calm, peace. What you were describing, why you enjoy cycling, right? Is that just awe feeling that you feel when you cycle? I guarantee your parasympathetic system is engaged when you're on your bike. Um, so that sort of, does that frame, frame us a little bit here, how we think about this? So when you think about heart rate variability in general, it's a nice tool. You can buy these devices um, um, HeartMath makes them. There's a various, various companies that make these devices. Buy them online. You can, they have them now. You can download on your phone that aren't quite as good as the devices, but they're pretty good as well. And There are apps that you can download. Um, and you can check your heart rate variability. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it as we go through. So I'm going to go through what I call the six pillars of healthy living. And we're just going to touch on a couple of them. And this will affect also your cycling and your overall quality of life as well. The, um, when it comes to active living and, and, and exercise, most of you guys are engaged in it on most days of the week. Uh, the good news around it for those that aren't when you're trying to you know, encourage others to exercise like you do is that you get your biggest bang for your buck in the first 15, 20 minutes of your exercise when you're exercising and at a low to moderate exertion level. Um, For those of us that love to exercise, you don't need to worry about that because you just do your thing. But for those that are more reluctant, I tell people, look, if you exercise 15, 20 minutes a day at a gentle pace on a bike, so you break a sweat or walking whatever it might be, you're getting two-thirds of the benefit that you could possibly get, even if you exercise a lot more. And when it comes to food, the question is, what should you be eating? Um, So very long story, very short, is eat your vegetables. It turns out that with every serving of vegetable that you eat, whether you're going from zero servings of vegetables to one a day or six servings of vegetables to seven a day, you have a reduction in mortality by 6 to 8%, depending on the serving, which so even if someone doesn't eat any vegetables, if you have them eat one vegetable serving of vegetables a day, They just reduce the risk of of dying, whether it's from cancer, heart disease, stroke, respiratory, across multiple indices with every serving that they eat. So who knows about this concept of a ketogenic diet? Ketones floating around in your body. So this is becoming a new trend, um, and I think it's really interesting. It's worth exploring for those that are interested in this sort of thing. As our bodies age, we use glucose less well than we used to, particularly for insulin-resistant. And having more ketones in your body isn't, actually is a very, very good source of fuel for our cells, for our brain, and for our muscles. So different ways to get there. Some people do evening fasting. So if you just fast roughly 14 hours a day, best done in the evening. Um, so let's say you stop eating around 8, don't eat again until 10 in the morning, maybe do a little exercise in the morning before you eat, you'll actually reduce body fat and get in a mildly ketogenic state, mild ketones floating around your body. And it's actually beneficial. And there's a lot of research coming out. One of the senior authors, Rick Hecht, who actually here is here at UCSF, just published a study looking at this, who's at the OSHA Center for Integrated Medicine, and looking at a lot of physiologic markers and how they change from a cardiovascular and di- diabetes perspective. Uh, and and ultra-endurance athletes are do it, looking at this more and more as well. The other ways are to eating a high-fat diet, high, ideally healthy-fat diet, with very low, basically no carbohydrates. So it's a 70% fat diet. 70%. It's a lot. 20% protein, which is where most people make the mistake to eat too much protein. And then 10% carbohydrates, It's just really all non-starchy carbohydrates, so basically vegetables, And the sources for fat are ideally like avocado, nuts, full-fat dairy, things like that, and less on the the meat side. Um, So uh, those are – and then there's intermittent fasting. So those are the different options within this ketogenic diet. I invite you to explore more. It's a bigger dialogue than we have time for today, but I thought I'd just mention it. Sleep is quite important, um, and I'm a believer in napping. You see many people enjoy napping as well, whether they do it consciously or unconsciously, whether they plan it or not. Um, but sleep is actually quite an issue in the United States, and there's a reason why it's the number one category for the most funding that pharmaceutical drug companies give to direct-to-consumer advertising. So on those all those ads we see, this is a, one of their top c- categories because we have trouble sleeping. Exercise is a great way to promote sleep, and there's many other methods, but I encourage you to get the right amount of sleep for yourself and find ways to, to improve your sleep. One of the biggest causes of disrupted sleep is the mind and is stress. So I encourage you to sort of explore what are some things that you do, exercise being a great one, um, and other practices as well to think about how is it that I can improve my quality of sleep, how is it I can improve my ability to stay focused, stay in the present moment, keep a clear mind i not, you know, for, for example, on cycling, sometimes we space out, we're on the bike, we zone out for a little while, next thing we know, you know, 500 yards has gone by, right? So how do we kind of stay clear? And it requires a lot of focus and concentration when you're on the bike, particularly when you're on roads where there's traffic and issues going on. So I encourage you to try some of these practices. Uh, meditations is one option, yoga, martial arts, which I'm a big fan of, They've shown, in these functional MRI scans are sort of representing, that people that tend to ruminate or worry, they can decrease those circuits so that they actually are less active over time and and simply an eight-week course. Um, And there's lots of different classes out there. uh, One example is called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, or MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Eight-week class, you go once a week. Um, and it's a great sort of primer into this sort of world. And high, you've probably heard about it and seen it, a lot of high-performance elite athletes now are really using meditation as a way to improve their um, elite status and really be able to stay focused and be in the present moment to be able to see what's going on around them, be, improve their reaction times, etc. The example I gave is sort of being in the zone, right? So how can you find yourself... In the zone, and this whole theory about flow theory, where you, you know, where you're sort of the right amount of a challenge, but not too much of a challenge, right? If you're overtaxed, then you shut down, and if you're undertaxed, you get bored, and so that's why I sort of you know back to this slide here, where you know if you're in the green zone and you're laid back and things seem groovy, but actually knowing most of us will get bored here, and then we. Unfortunately, some people tend to isolate, oscillate between the green zone and the red zone. So how do you find that sweet spot and sort of stay on that leading edge? That, that's the goal. Um, and there's different ways to think about that. Another way to sort of view into that conversation is something called hormesis. Have you ever heard of hormesis, which is just enough taxing on the body that it stimulates growth, whether that might be a slight flu when you're a kid that you get, so your immune system actually gets more robust, or whether you're sort of pushing yourself athletically, so that your body gets more robust so oftentimes we may end up may end up in a zone where we're feeling like we're just being chased all the time um, and then we spend the night sort of ruminating about it um, this this graph is sort of depicting the phenomena of you know the challenge is long gone but the person in the blue is still physiologically just turned up and thinking about it And to be sort of learn to be noticed when that happens so that you can bring yourself and become more of that red person than the blue. The final piece I think that's relevant just to think about is our experience of our stress is more important than the actual stress itself. So let me say that again. Our experience of how we walk through life and the stressors that we come upon is more important than the actual stressors themselves. And the reason I, I say this is that there's been some amazing work. And um, uh, Alyssa Eppel, who's here, and Elizabeth Blackburn, who's also here, and they, recent, they have a recent book out around telomeres. They've been doing this work for quite some time. Has shown, and the original studies were looking at moms, moms with chronically ill children. And what they showed was if you take all moms with chronically ill kids, they're pretty stressed out. You know, it's a lot, big care burden, lots of responsibility. They had them fill out these forms, a form called a Perceived Stress Scale. It's a a 10-question survey, you can get it online. It's pretty quick and easy to fill out. And it turns out those moms that felt that had a higher perceived stress actually had shorter telomeres, meaning that their cells were aging more rapidly than the moms that actually had low perceived stress. So if you're a mom that didn't feel as stressed out, you weren't aging as quickly at a cellular level than the mom that was. And they, of course, controlled for all the objective measures of stress. You know, the amount of hours that they were up, how much they were sleeping, how much care burden there was, et cetera. And then there's been lots of studies since looking at all sorts of different populations confirming this phenomenon. So I invite you to just reflect on that. You know, when a car cuts you off and you're on your bike, how angry do we get, you know? And how long do we sit with it? It's hard. It's not easy it's not to... To, um, have issues, and as some of you've probably seen, you know, and heard about the events in Mill Valley and other places where people have gotten off their bikes and literally beat up drivers. How do we how do we manage that rage? So and get into a place like, like Like if these guys can be this calm, gosh, can't we? Um, so I want to spend a few minutes talking about some supplements. I'm just going to talk about sort of one main pathway called nitric oxide pathway, and. Uh, it's sort of an interesting one. If any, has anyone heard about uh, using, for example, beet juice in cyclists? So that's so people have been using that. I also actually recommend it to lower blood pressure. It's actually relatively effective. Um, and other sources, sources, such as arugula, and there's other actually foods out there that have a lot of nitric oxide for people with high blood pressure. But in this case, for athletic performance, the goal is here is, is to basically the dietary nitrate that you ingest then gets converted by the bacteria in our gut to nitrite, and then that in turn becomes this nitric oxide that then we can use in our body for, to generate energy. And so the benefits they've found are you know, it helps with blood flow regulation uh, and muscle contraction, and we think recovery. So you fatigue the muscle. And then go back and repeat it again. So, for example, high-interval training or high-intensity interval training or perhaps sprinters, et cetera. Um, so it's really interesting. So people have been using a few different things. L-arginine alpha-ketoglutarate you'll find around in different supplements. L-arginine alpha-ketoglutarate and beetroot juice. Um, typically in the studies, and there's various studies, randomized controlled trials looking at particularly beetroot juice, they'll take about 150 or 140 cc, so that's roughly five, five ounces of beetroot juice. And in that, it's about 800 milligrams per day, basically, of this beetroot. Um, and they found uh, root, uh, time in different studies, but one of them, for example, found not so much an increase in your ability to, uh, of your maximum power, but an increase in your ability to get to maximum power quicker. So the time over over sort of maximum um, exertion is quicker f- to that peak. So, for example, for sprinters, for example. And then they're able to stay there. And different studies have shown they'll be able to stay there longer, or actually some studies have shown actually improvement in actual performance and in maximum load. So different studies out there. It's still all in the works, and, you know, it's still interesting to explore. It's not definitive. Um, same with the L-Arginine. Um, but I can tell you, I've experimented with the L-arginine alpha-ketoglutarate as a product that I've used um, over-the-counter, a dietary supplement. Um, and it, it, Granted, it also had caffeine in it, which many people oh, use. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I can remember doing this, and, um, and I've done just pure caffeine, like the goo caffeine. see what that's like and then this and i've not told my my mates that i'm cycling with you know just to see if they notice a difference and one of the rides we did they're like man you were doing great on that segment and i handed them a little stick of the stuff like okay now you try it you tell them let's see what happens um it's worth experimenting with assuming you don't have any contraindications most most people don't um and but i find it quite quite interesting and fun to to explore Um, So I'll stop for now, and we've got about 10 minutes or so for questions. Um, So I'm happy to entertain them. Yes. Great. Yes. So your question about ketones or ketogenic diet and how do you get in a ketotic state. So you know, you may have heard of diabetic ketoacidosis. That's not what you want to have happen, and that won't happen to you. Um, You get in this mild ketosis state, and there's different ways to check it. If you want to be sort of one of those guys that's checking and measuring, you can pee on a little stick that will show you it. Um, there's a more reliable method, which is to do a a skin prick um, and and put into a little machine, and it'll measure the amount of ketones that you're producing, which is typically mild, somewhere one to three, roughly, rather than 30, which is people that are in diabetic ketoacidosis. Um, The ways to get there are, so evening ketosis, as many days as you can a week, but typically, yeah, most days of the week, so you stop eating around eight or so, and eat again around 10 in the morning, and by that time you will have used all the glucose that's in, in your bloodstream or in the liver and depleted it, particularly if you're exercise uh, before you eat. There's one study that did a randomized study and they looked at this and they found that um, it, was, it, wasn't, it was slightly different than what I'm describing, but basically they got folks in a ketogenic state and those folks, uh, athletes, actually had three, an additional 3% uh, body fat reduction Uh, Loss because it was pulling fat for fuel, which is great. Um, So to answer your question, most days of the week would be ideal. Now, the other option is fasting, and you could do pure fasting, or there's a uh, uh, a British physician named Michael Mosley, I believe his name is, and he wrote the 5-2 diet, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that's come from that since. And there's some folks at the Karolinski Institute in Sweden, which is related to the Osher Center Institutes, actually, looking at this phenomena and showing that two days a week, you eat 600 calories, roughly a day. And the rest of the time, you eat whatever you normally eat. Now, Michael Mosley says, you know, you can eat all your potatoes and everything that you want, which I'm not a fan of. But You know, the British diet. Um, But two days a week, you're doing a modest fast. And that has shown to have been quite good physiologically as well. So, those are the two options, other than the one I mentioned before about the ketogenic diet. Yeah, so VO2 max testing is not readily available, can be expensive. And your comment about power meters, if I can comment on power meters, meaning sort of looking at your wattage production. Yeah, and you can, there are, there, I, I was going to put the equation in here, there is an equation that you could use to, look, if you know your body weight and your wattage, you can estimate your VO2 uptake, and I presume that's what you're looking at. And that is, a, a, you know, reliable uh, surrogate marker. It's not as good as the VO2 max, but people use that as well. Um, it's, it's a little bit different because, you know, is it peak, is it sustained? Um, you have to sort of calibrate certain factors of it, but that, that is another method of doing it. Do you have access to that? Yeah, right. Because the pedals are a thousand bucks, and it's two hundred bucks or so for VO2 max testing. So, uh, so the first question was about uh, VO2 max uh, readings off a of Garmin. Is that what you said? Yeah. So I didn't realize they actually do that now, um, and I haven't compared it to the VO2 correlates here. Um, it's an extrapolation based on you would re- require wattage, I presume, the, for the pedals the and your heart rate. Yeah. So it's using that formula. That takes in the, it has to know your body weight and your the wattage production and then it's using that formula. So that's that's basically what it's doing. I I, I would just use wattage. I mean it's really just using wattage and figuring it out from there. Although you know to be fair, I can remember standing side by side with my you know a six foot four, two hundred and fifty pound cyclist and a you know one hundred and forty pound cyclist and me and. There's different water being produced. We're all going the same rate. So there is, a, there is a good reason why you want to look at kilograms. So I think it's reasonable to do. Um, and But I haven't done the head-to-head comparison. The second question you had was about uh, how intense did you work out if, you have, if you're if you fasting. Um, the studies looked at just moderate intensity when they were doing it. It wasn't high intensity. Um, but everyone's different. So I happened to do CrossFit the past Couple of years, I've started doing CrossFit for fun. See what that's like. Um, and I don't work out. I don't eat before I go in, and so that's pretty high intensity. And then I leave and go, you know, and eat. Um, I do fine, but you know, everyone's different. I wouldn't, rec- I wouldn't start that way. Yeah, ketones. Yeah. So you get this distinct smell um, that your partner won't like being around um so it's funny because i have several patients that are doing the ketogenic diet and like to exercise and their partners are all complaining to me about this they're like jesus breath is just like smell it yeah so there's a distinct so that's an that's a, a way without measuring it uh you could also know yeah yeah magnesium glycinate uh, glycinate Uh, Magnesium, do I have an opinion about it? For what purpose? It's great for lowering blood pressure, for muscle relaxation, for sleep. I don't know. I mean, the only thing I could think about is its ability to reduce cramping. Um, So perhaps he's using it for for that reason. But I don't know how it would increase, you know, uh, skeletal func- muscle function, but uh, I, it's worth looking up. I don't know, but I could, it definitely is used for, to reduce cramping. So we'll use it, you know, if you're on a, a century ride or something and avoid cramping up. But um, magnesium is an important piece of that. Yeah. So I, um, I I'm not sure. I, uh, so I, have, just so you know, I have no vested interest in any of the companies I've mentioned nor the ones I'm about to mention. Um, I really have no, no conflicts there at all. Um, And I don't know them all, Um, so what I do is look at the labels. A lot of them are filled like you know, Gatorade is horrible to drink, right? So a lot you got to look at the label and see what's in it, right? Um, Artificial coloring, high fructose corn syrup, there's lots of sugar, like that stuff you want to avoid. With that said, uh, some of them are high quality. The the one I use is a product by Zymogen called ATP Ignite, and um, that was what I was telling you about it. It's got a little caffeine in it. It's got the L-arginine in it. And that has been really interesting and effective. It takes about a half hour to kick in. and it lasts for a couple hours, two hours roughly. And then it wanes off. And um, So there are some products out there that are, that are good. Um, and I would just encourage you to read the label. Uh, and ideally, the companies are third-party vetted. So there's a quality assurance program that the companies are engaged in because they don't have to actually put in the bottle what they put on the label. Let me say that again. Supplement companies are not required to put in the bottle what's on the label. Well, they're, they're required in theory. So the FDA says you have to, and that if they audit you and you don't have good good manufacturing practices, they can come in and find you and do stuff. But the FDA, as you know, doesn't have the resources to do that, so they don't get audited. So I encourage people to like look on the label and see if there's a third party that's whether it's USP or NSF, there's a couple companies out there that do that. No. I think So there's science on all sides of that conversation. Carbs, do you carb load before you work out? Should you have more carbs? Is, should you be protein loading? Um, there's arguments on all sides of that conversation. So I tell people to experiment and see, I think everyone's physiology is a little different. Um, and I tell people to experiment. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so a question about cramping. Um, so I, I, electrolytes replacement, right? So, and there's lots, you know, whether it's osmosis or none, there's lots of different companies out there. Those are really helpful. Um, and for, in my experience in talking, you know, personally and with with other cyclists, um, th- some people notice a difference between the different ones, and some, a lot of people don't, and they think they all work pretty well. It's a matter of how palatable they are. But it is really important to to keep enough of those of those around. Um, and then stretching, of course, before and after cycling is another big piece. Magnesium plays a big role as well. Yeah, it's interesting. And part of it might also be related to hydration too. Um, so hydration plays a huge factor in, in, in cramping. Um, as well as um, why you might all of a sudden start cramping again other than you know, how you got tolerant to a certain uh, electrolyte replacement therapy. I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, thank you all for your time. I'm happy to stay for questions if you have more. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.